Hey, hey, friends, I'm Thea Charles, and you are listening to the Push or Pivot podcast. In this series, we discuss the path someone chooses when they are at a crossroads of their life. Do they push through the adversity or do they stop, reassess, and pivot? I have the pleasure of speaking with our guest, Tiffany Johnson. Tiffany is a survivor of the 1999 Swiss Canyoning disaster. On July 27, 1999, she was swept away and survived an avalanche of water in the Swiss Alps. Tiffany shares with us her incredible story, the events leading up, and her resilience. Okay, well, welcome, Tiffany. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited too. Across the sea. I know. It's uh, morning for you and nighttime for me. And I just feel like technology is so grand. <laughs> just bringing oh, yeah. us together, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. And we can have so much profound impact on the whole world by the power of technology. It's such mm-hmm. a gift. It is. Definitely, definitely is. Um, before we get started, I would yeah. love if you could um, give us a little background and tell us a little bit about yourself. I would love to. So um, my name is Tiffany Johnson and I'm from Australia, as people will hear from my accent. (laughs) Uh, And I live in the bottom of Australia, so I'm down in Victoria in Melbourne and it's freezing here. It's winter at the moment. Uh, I'm a mother. I have two children, two teenage children, and I'm married and I have two dogs as well. And in my work, what I do is I'm an author I'm a speaker and I'm a podcast host as well on the When We Are Brave podcast. And my business is all around empowering people to believe in themselves to live their best and bravest life. Because I truly believe that when you live as your own self, your true, who you truly, truly are deep within who you are, that you have this amazing gift that you can share with the world. And so I... I use my story of survival, which I'm so excited to be sharing with your audience to help people feel empowered to know that they can do anything when they put their mind to it. Yeah. And I really, I can't wait to hear your story. Um, And your story starts back in 1999, right? Yeah, it sure does. Even a little bit before that, actually. So I'll take us back a little bit further. So when I was 17, I grew up in rural Australia, um, not in Victoria. I grew up in New South Wales and on a farm. And I lived in a really small town and I'd lived there all my life. I really felt like I, it wasn't that I didn't belong because I did belong, but I felt like parts of me didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And it was like, there was a missing puzzle piece of me. And when I finished high school, I had all these different options laid out in front of me to go to all these different uh, universities or whatever I wanted to do. And I applied to a whole bunch of different places because I just wasn't sure what I wanted. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people who start on that, those first steps to adulthood, we really kind of struggle to, where do we fit in? And is this really the rest of my life? And um, I had been accepted into one of Australia's top fine arts colleges. And I actually thought they'd made a mistake when they sent me my acceptance letter because I just didn't believe in myself that I would, was good enough. Mm. And I, I look back at that moment now and I think, oh, Tiffany, Tiffany, like mm-hmm. that was this amazing opportunity. So I actually chose a steady and safer path and went to university. But I also thought that if I moved away from home, that I mm. would maybe find those pieces of me that I was missing. And so I moved interstate. Okay. And I went to university. My second year at university, I was working and I was making coffee. Now, I hate coffee. I don't drink coffee. I can't make coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was like flustered with all the knobs and bells and whistles and the steam. And, and there was this absolutely divine looking man coming to get his morning coffee. And my heart stopped. And I don't know if you remember, but those first intense feelings of Mm. a relationship, that first really intense moment and the butterflies and you can't breathe. I had that. And I didn't even know these feelings existed. And I thought, oh, this is this must be it. This must be the thing that I'm really missing in my life. Maybe these are the pieces that I've been looking for. Mm -hmm. 
than a week we'd moved in together. Like talk about whirlwind. I know, crazy. (laughs) And, you know, we were so loved up and those first three months, they were just like, they were beautiful and amazing and and Mm -hmm. full of wonder. But within three months, the wheels had started to fall off and it became a toxic heated mess. And I had no idea how to get out of it. I'd fallen head over heels fast and strong. And the toxicity of that relationship was as bad as it gets. Right. And I was so far away from my family. I'd been completely removed from all of my friends. Mm. That really common wheel of, you know, the love, the affection, Mm -hmm. and then there's the removal and then there's the toxicity and then the pattern just keeps going over again. And I was actually in that relationship for two years. Oh, wow. And we'd had a death in my family and I was finally allowed, I say in Mm. inverted commas, to go home. And so I drove back home, which took nearly a day and a night. And when I got home, there was no one there. And so I went down onto our farm and, you know, sort of was, you know, knew all the wombat holes and we had all these amazing wombats on our farm. I, I don't know if you know what wombats are, but they're like. <laughs> I kind of, like from textbooks, like what? <laughs> So um, they're they're an an Indigenous Australian animal and they're like this little ball of fur and they're super cute with these big noses and they sort of Mm -hmm. waddle around and they eat grass and they've got the huge big bums and they have little tiny baby ones. And I knew where all the wombat holes were on our farm and so I would Mm -hmm. use, you know, by the moonlight I was making my way through this beautiful sacred space that was my home Mm -hmm. and I just felt so incredibly lost. And when I'd left to find those pieces, I'd actually lost everything that I'd fallen off completely. And when I was in my childhood bedroom, I stood in the mirror and I looked at myself and I had gone down to 40 kilos. I was anorexic. I just wasn't eating. I suffered Mm -hmm. low self-esteem, high anxiety. And I thought, what has happened to you? Who are you? This is not who you are. What are you doing? And so being back with my family, I started to regain more strength and courage, but I hid everything from my parents. I couldn't bear to share the trauma and the shame that I felt from the decision. I felt like it was all my fault. And I kept thinking if I could fix me, maybe Mm -hmm. if I changed me, that I could fix this relationship and go back to what it was at the beginning. And I then realized that can't happen. Maybe it can, but I really have been trying so hard and it's just not happening. So I got back in my little hatchback car with a can of Coke and a couple of Mars bars and I drove all the way back to what was supposed to be our happy home and he was in bed with two of other women who were my friends. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that was actually like a blessing because it gave me the opportunity to finally really leave. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And I went as far away as I could and I went to a tropical island, but I didn't trust anybody. I had low Mm self-esteem. I still had, I was starting to eat again. I was starting to get healthy again, but I just had all of these mental issues happening within me because I've been treated so badly for two years. And then I was coming home from work one night and there were two men following me and I was nearly raped and I managed to get away and and then the phone called and it was back in the day where there's, and it's now 1999 mm-hmm. and we're back in the day where, you know, it's actually a phone mounted to the, the wall. wall. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> Showing my age. Yeah. And, I, um, <laughs> you know, like, I always laugh at that. I need you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the phone had called and one of the girls who was living in the hall, it was kind of like a dormitory style accommodation where I was living on the island. And, um, and I was drinking way too much, partying too hard because then I could actually um, just be someone else. Like I didn't have, I constantly had this shame. It was gnawing away at my insides. Mm-hmm. And the phone rang and I heard his breathing and he'd actually found me. And I thought if I, if I take this phone call, then maybe I'll be able to keep him away. But if I don't take the phone call, this other person who lives in my dormitory has answered the phone and said, yes, I will get her. He knows where I am. What am I going to do? So I took the phone call and time, not much time went on and he kept ringing and the same wheel started again, but I was unaware of it. I was was so good at manipulating me. And then he said, I'm going back overseas. He was from the United Kingdom 
And I said to him, do you want to book a ticket for two? Because I was so filled with fear of what would happen after that incident with those Mm -hmm. two men that I thought maybe it's better the devil I know than the devil Mm -hmm. I don't know. And so we went overseas together and that was difficult in so many ways because I kept thinking, what are you doing? And I didn't listen to my intuition. And that's when I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And maybe if I change and maybe if I try and make it work and maybe if I do this, but it never was going to work. It was never going to happen. And, excuse me, he still was so good at manipulating me. And I truly did think, well, maybe it will. Maybe it will change Mm -hmm. this time. Maybe it'll be amazing. It wasn't. And um, cutting a very, very long story short, which I talk more about in my book, Brave Enough Now, mm-hmm. I, he manipulated me in telling me that, you know, I'd need a joint bank account for when we get married and don't worry, I'll never touch it and don't worry, I'll, I'll travel with you and everything will be fine and it'll be wonderful. But I really knew that this just, in my heart of hearts, I knew that it was never going to happen. And so I was going through my bag thinking, okay, you've got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. But I was so isolated again. This is the thing. You just feel so alone. Like that mm-hmm. loneliness is so debilitating. And I know so many people in the world right now have felt that because we've all been in isolation. It's, mm-hmm. And it's, it's really tough when you feel that alone. It's a horrible, horrible, dark feeling. And I was going through my things you know, my head going, what the hell are you doing? Where are you going to go? You need to get a job. You need to, you know, you can do this, like giving myself a pep talk. Yeah. And a letter fell onto my bag and it was covered in all these love hearts and it was addressed to him. It had an Australian sticker, like stamp on it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, what is in that letter? I have to know what's in that letter. It's something Mm -hmm. I would never normally do, but I opened it. Okay. Inside was a letter from his married girlfriend back in Australia thanking him for the airline tickets that he had just bought her for her to fly overseas and be with him. He had no money and, um, you know, plant their plan of how they were going to get rid of me. And, and it smelled like really cheap perfume as well. And I was like, oh, my God, who oh my writes God. this? And I realised, okay, I that's it. I'm out of here. And so I left Mm -hmm. and I had, now I had no money, Mm -hmm. nowhere to go and no idea what was next. And so I called home and Mm -hmm. I rang, it was, I don't know what time it was, but my mum answered the phone and it had that old fashioned like um, Uh, call collect. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And um, anyway, my, my mum said to me, and I still had never told my parents about the true nature of the relationship. Yeah. And I never said to her how the money was gone. I just said, it's gone. And I said to my mum, I want to come home. And I'm actually howling in the phone booth, in a phone booth, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's 1999. Yeah. And people are walking past going, oh, my God, what's wrong with that girl? Like, they were giving me all these funny looks. And I was hysterical. I was like, what am I going to do? Yeah. And she said, you can't have gone to the other side of the world and have had a terrible time. Go and book a Kentucky tour. Go and meet people your own age. Go and have an mm-hmm. amazing time. And then when you get back, you can decide. You can either stay overseas and get a job and backpack or do whatever you want to do, or you can come home. You mm-hmm. don't have to stay there. But don't be on the other side of the world and have had this horrendous experience don't worry about a thing. Go find yourself a nice hotel, ring me, I'll pay for it, it's fine, and mm-hmm. then we'll get you on a tour and then you can go and then work it out. Right. And so that's, that's what I did. And even just trying to book the Kentucky tour itself was really challenging. And for those of you who don't know what a Kentucky tour is, it's um, a bus tour that's like a speed dating of countries. So you mm-hmm. spend a couple of days in each country and it's all organised. You see all the tourist sites, you know, you have dinner and da-da-da-da. And Kentucky in particular is targeted at 18 to 35. So it's yeah. like party time. Mm-hmm. So I've been on one of those. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It's so much fun, right? It was so fun. Much fun. We went to yeah. Jamaica. We had a great time. Oh, yeah. It would have been amazing. And so, um, so even like, even that week leading up to getting on the bus, there was so many signs from the universe saying to me, stop, do not go any further. And they had been coming from the time I'd got on that plane. I felt so sick in the stomach before I got on that plane. I went and bought my favorite biscuits, which are Tim Tams, Mm -hmm. which are chocolate coated. They're a very, very, very popular Australian biscuit. So I bought, I bought this whole 
whole packet of biscuits and I ate the whole packet thinking if I just eat more chocolate, I'll feel better. <laughs> I didn't feel better. It just felt worse. And so the, all these stop signs kept coming up and I kept hitting roadblock after roadblock. I'd miss a bus by two minutes and then it would take me, you know, 10 hours to do a five hour trip and just so many things. I nearly got mugged in London. Like it was just constant. And I kept pushing. I just kept pushing because I thought mm. I have no other option. I did have mm. other options, but in my mind, feeling so low about myself, mm-hmm. I thought I can't go home and have, and I can't go home broken. Great. I just can't do it. I have to achieve. I need to succeed. I need to know who I am. I need to have a plan in my life. I need to be me, whoever the hell that is. I don't mm. want to go home. I don't want to disappoint my parents, that people pleasing. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to get on the bus to get on the, t- on the Kentucky trip, everyone's on the bus and the woman says to me, papers, please. And I'm like, I felt like I was like a prisoner of war mm-hmm. crossing the border or something, <laughs> papers. And I was like, papers? I don't have any papers. Like, I've got a receipt and here's my, uh, here's my passport. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, no, I need all this stuff. So I held the bus up by two hours and you can like getting on that bus uh, with all those young kids mm-hmm. and there's the cheers and the yahoos. And I just couldn't find a seat. And I thought, what am I doing? I should have just gone home. This is a disaster. And I kept making mistake after mistake. And then finally, I just felt so alone still. And this constant gnawing of lacking of trust, lacking of who I was. We're driving through Tuscany. We've been on the trip for a while now and it was beautiful. It was so amazing. There was all these sunflowers. Everyone was Mm -hmm. asleep on the bus and I was like, you're all missing this. I desperately wanted to share my experience with somebody. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of home and I was homesick and I wished I was sharing it with my mum and my dad and my brother. And and I, I looked up over the seat of the bus like poked my head up like a meerkat and this other girl at the same time had poked her head up like a meerkat and I sort of said to her come up here come up here and so I had a spare seat next to me and she came and sat next to me and the two of us had this incredibly divine spiritual connection and we Mm -hmm. just shared our entire life to each other things that we'd never shared with anyone else our deepest darkest secrets and Mm -hmm. it was the most amazing and profound experience and she's still my best friend to this day. Oh, yeah, she's my sister I never had. She's a second mother to my children. I'm the second mother to her children. And so it's this beautiful, beautiful friendship. And that was the beginning of my pivot mm. because I finally felt like I was accepted warts and all by someone else and I was loved by someone else other than my family. That's un- right. I ha- I'm blessed in that I have unconditional love and this beautiful family that I can rely on. But this was someone different. This was someone I'd never known. I hadn't had this experience. I'd been bullied badly as a child. I didn't feel like I fit in with the cool kids at school, in high school. I'd had this horrendous relationship where I'd just been treated so badly and I knew that I was worth more, but I kept feeling like everyone outside of my immediate family just kept pushing me down. Mm-hmm. And so when we got to Switzerland, it was amazing. I went up to um, Jungfrau, which is the highest train station in the world. And it's actually okay. at a glacier. Now I've never okay. seen snow. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so funny. <laughs> so many people and I do lots of different podcasts on, I tell this story and this, but I always crack up because they're like, what? <laughs> that's so weird. Yeah. But I lived at the beach in the country and it was hot mm-hmm. and there was deserts. And so very different climate. Yeah. And when I saw this snow and these mountains, we don't have mountains like that in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that, and I just thought, my God, these mountains have stood the test of time. They've mm. withstood blizzards and humans and dinosaurs. Like, right. this is amazing. Mm-hmm. If these mountains can stand the test of time, then so can I. And I can do this. I can do this thing called life. And it's all going to be okay. And so I felt this incredible sense of liberation and freedom within myself. And what I'd always been searching for was that self-acceptance and that self-belief and knowing that it was okay to make mistakes and it was okay that I'd made wrong turns and it was okay to love yourself. It was okay to believe that you had gifts and talents and dreams. And it was really such a moment in my life where I held this snow and there's a photo of me holding the snow and I'm like beaming with joy because yes. this 
is amazing. This glacier's been here for how many thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years, and mm-hmm. I'm here? Yeah, it was just so wonderful. And that night was the first night I did not need one drop of alcohol to make me feel better about who I was because I finally had that self-belief. And then the next day we were going canyoning and I was so ready for life. I called my dad that morning. I told him about how amazing it was going to be and we're so excited and I was pumped with adrenaline and I'm living life, dad, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer the world. You know, I feel great. And when we got to Adventure World, which was the company who was taking us canyoning, we're getting all dressed. We had full life vests on, uh, full, sorry, wetsuits on and life vests, helmets, gloves, little water mm-hmm. shoes. And we were standing in a line and they were just sort of putting us in different groups and yeah, whatever. But there was a girl standing next to me who I didn't know and she was putting a Band-Aid over her wedding rings and there was a girl her friend was talking to this girl and the friend said, why are you putting a bandaid on your wedding rings? And I was standing there not knowing either of them at all, mm-hmm. complete strangers. And I was thinking the same thing. I was like, why, why, why are you married? Why are you on a Kentucky tour and you're married? Oh, well, I guess you're having lots of fun because I was quite young. And why are you putting a bandaid on your wedding rings? Like what's that going to do? It just bandaids come off in the water. So why are you putting a bandaid on? And she said to her friend, because just in case something happens, I want people to know that I was married. And in that moment, I'd had the same feeling that I'd had when I'd bought those Tim Tams, that something incredibly bad was about to happen. My stomach was doing this overload of butterflies. My intuition was going crazy saying, stop, do not go any further. And I stood there looking at this woman thinking, does she feel the same way as I feel? Does she have this feeling as well? Is it just me? But I didn't know her. She was from another bus tour. And I was there with lots of different friends that I'd made from the tour. And, you know, she's actually never been found. Her body has never, ever been found. Wow. And I wonder to this day, did she have those feelings that I had? Because why else would you say that? Mm -hmm. So as we made our way up to the top of the canyon where we entered, I... My hair was so fuzzy because when I've got curly, really curly hair mm. and, you know, when it's about to rain, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I know right you get it. With me. Right there. That's <laughs> so why I was like, back today. yeah, that's it. Right. So it's not raining here. So mine's out. Um, yeah. So I was like, I know it's going to rain. I just don't know where. And what I didn't understand was that where the rain was, was actually at the very, very top of the mountain, which is about... I think it's like at 4,000 feet. Like it's yeah. big. It's a huge mountain. We're talking Alps. I'm in the middle of the Swiss Alps. Yeah. And so I didn't, I couldn't quite comprehend how far away that was as in vertically because we don't have mountains like that in Australia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a farm girl. I know all about the weather. I know about drought. I know about flood. I know, you know, I can tell by what birds are coming when the rain's coming. You know, I've got a very good understanding of the weather in the country in Australia. Mm-hmm. But in the Swiss Alps, I had absolutely no idea. I just knew that there was rain coming because of my fuzzy hair. And so when we got out of the bus and we're putting our helmets on and our guide said to us, we're not 100% sure whether or not we should go in today, but don't worry. There are plenty of exit points along the way. And if we need to get out, we can. And we trusted them and they didn't know what was going to happen. And so we said, okay, you know, and off we went. And we did the first dive, um, first sort of slide into Mm -hmm. the canyon. So for those of you who don't know what canyoning is, <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. That's okay. For those, for those of you who don't know what canyoning is, canyoning is um, like in, um, we'd call it like a creek through the mountain or a stream mm-hmm. through a mountain. Okay. And there's rapids and there's lots of boulders and you make your way down through the stream um, using your body. So you, there's no rafts or anything. So you, oh. might, you might use a rope to swing from one to the other. You might abseil, you might slide like a natural slippery slide, like a natural water slide, actually. Um, You might walk through the water. You might have to jump off a boulder and into a water hole. Um, You might have to climb through. So you're just making your way through and you're using harnesses and ropes. And um, it's an, it's an adventure sport, like a, you know, kayaking or whitewater rafting or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And so we, um, so there is an element of danger in there, but, mm-hmm. you know, we thought we would be totally safe. Right. So we go through the first jump, which was this incredible water slide, and there's yahoos and everyone's so excited. And I, when I got to the water hole, 
I'd seen there were circles in the water and I was completely covered in wetsuit material from head to toe because the water's freezing it's melted snow right so um I was like why would there be fish up here we're a long way up the top of the mountain and surely there's no fish like because the water was running quite fast how could there possibly be fish anyway I put my hands out and realized that it was actually rain and I was right it was going to rain and by now I could start to hear the thunder and it was getting a lot closer and by the time I got halfway down the canyon, the water had changed. So when we first entered the canyon, it's beautiful. It was this crystal clear water. Like I said, it's melted snow. It's so pristine. I had never seen anything so immaculately beautiful in the form of nature. It was like perfection. It was like the Garden of Eden. Wow. It was green and luscious and there was moss on those rocks and the water was clear and it was... It was just this magical, magical place. When we got to the middle, the water had changed to a really murky, muddy brown. And it was rising really, really quickly. And it had gone from my ankle to my knee within a matter of moments. And I turned to my friend and I said to her, why is the water rising? And she's like, I don't know. And then our guide said to us, we need to move really quickly. And so I took that next jump. And I was the only one to take that next jump. And where we were situated in the canyon, it was we were all in single file and it was very, very narrow, maybe, maybe 60, 70 centimetres. It wasn't even a metre wide. Okay. I don't know what that is in feet. Sorry, I'm not okay, good I'm at good. conversions. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I took that jump, I'm quite tentative normally when I'm about to go for a swim or get into the sea or go, you know, whatever. I sort of stand there a bit like a penguin. I go in, I go out, I go in, I go out, I go in, mm-hmm. I go out. But this time I stood on the edge of this boulder and I crossed my arms and I just, in my head, my intuition by now was going crazy. Mm-hmm. And I just literally, I got to the top of the boulder and I jumped into the water and I would never normally do that. That was so out of character for me, but I just knew within my heart of hearts that I had to take that jump there and then, and now. And when I entered into the water, into this water hole, it's about a four meter jump. I went into the water and the noise was deafening. It was so, so loud. And I popped up due to wearing a life vest and the current had got really, really strong. There was a guide in the waterhole waiting for me and he reached out to grab my hand and our hands slipped past each other as I was sucked under the rapids and washed away. And in that moment, as I was washed away, a massive wall of water over four metres high came down and killed all of my friends that were standing in line in that canyon. But I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was that I'd been washed away. And as I had been washed away, the first thing that came into my head was my father's voice. And he, I could hear him saying to me, if ever you get caught in floodwaters, just relax and stay calm. Water is stronger than us all. Mm-hmm. Just relax. And so I surrendered my body. I was almost like going into a meditative state is the best wow. way of describing it. And so all I did was just try and focus on getting some air whenever I could. And so I kept getting snippets of air. My body was tossing and turning and whacking into logs and debris, but I just went completely numb and limp. And then eventually I was pushed up to this huge boulder by the force of a giant log that crushed Mm. my abdomen, broke four of my ribs and damaged my pancreas. So I'm actually now type one diabetic and um, on an insulin pump, which keeps Mm -hmm. buzzing. (laughs) And, um, And as I was pushed up against this boulder and I was the first time I could see what I was amongst and I looked over to my right and I saw all my friends' lifeless bodies floating over the rapids so peacefully and so calm and I knew that they were dead. Wow. And then I looked over to the bank and I saw that beautiful green moss and the leaves but it was just too far away. And I knew as much as I'd been a strong swimmer, I would never, ever make it to the bank. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it was the most amazing moment of my life because I saw my life in a series of snapshots came to me and it felt like a long time, but it was only a matter of moments. Mm-hmm. And I saw an image of me as a child being bullied and pinned down in the playground by kids and how cruel they were to me. And then I saw me 
as a teenager and not fitting in and not feeling like I belonged and not being in with the in crowd. And then I saw me in that terrible relationship. And then I saw me on the mountain and I didn't ever want to be that girl that I had been. I wanted to be me that was on the mountain. And I Mm. thought if I stayed by that boulder, the water is lapping at my chin and I'm actually facing up towards the mountain so I can see what's coming down and there's massive logs and debris and bolt whole entire boulders were moving. And I thought if I stay here, I will die and I will die that girl. And I'm not that girl. I'm the girl on the mountain and I don't ever want to be that other girl again, ever. And so I wiggled free from this massive log and I let go again. And I let go back into the rapids and was washed away again. And I kept trying to come up for air again. And I, again, just relaxed. And there came a point where I thought, this is it. I have no air left. I, I have to take another breath. And the next breath I take is going to be water. And in that moment, I prayed and I prayed to God and I prayed to my aunt who died all those years before. Mm-hmm. And I said, dear God, dear Annie, die. Don't let me die. Because if I die, mum won't cope. <laughs> Which I still laugh about. And I'm actually thinking, still people pleasing. I'm about to die and I'm still people pleasing my parents. Oh, man, I really love my parents. And so the most incredible thing happened. It was whether it was God, whether it was an angel, whether it was a giant wave, I would never know what happened or why it happened or how it happened. But I sporadically burst up out of the water, taking the biggest breath I had ever taken in my life. And my whole torso was up out of the water. And I was was about to go over this enormous waterfall. And I'd already been over two other waterfalls, but I was this waterfall was huge and there's actually, if someone had taken a photo of it, it's on my website. And I went over this waterfall. I actually swore as I was about to go over the waterfall because I knew that, I mean, there was nowhere else I could go. And I was fell back into the water and I went over the waterfall. And when I came back up again, I was in this tiny little alcove next to the waterfall where I'd washed up into this peaceful alcove. There were no rapids. The water was clear again. When I came up for air, I was exhausted. I didn't actually know you could be that exhausted. I tried to move my legs, but they wouldn't work. And so I used my arms to make my way over to the edge. And I tried to grab onto the grass, but it was so wet and slippery that my hands kept slipping through the grass. And so I couldn't actually pull myself up to get out of the water. And that was probably the first time I actually felt scared because I thought if those rapids come in here, if they come back and get me, I am done for because I can't, I can't go, I can't do anymore. I've got nothing left. I have nothing left. And then a pair of feet arrived at my eyes because my head is just bobbing by the water. And this person grabbed down onto my life vest on my shoulders and tried to pull me out. But there was actually, the reason I really couldn't get out was because there was a giant big branch stuck through my life vest. Uh It was longer than my width of both of my arms. Mm -hmm. But I just was, I didn't, I couldn't, that hadn't registered because, you know, there was obviously a lot going on. And I wiggled back into the water. I was terrified that the rapids would come back and get me. And so I yanked this branch out as best I could and then... I yelled at go and this person pulled me up onto the bank. And when I looked up, it was one of my friends that had also survived. And I laid there panting and there were four of us that got washed up into that alcove. And then a person came from out of nowhere. I didn't know who it was or where they'd come from. And they started telling us we had to get to higher ground. We had to get to safety. And I jumped up like a soldier in combat, ordering everybody around Adrenaline had fully kicked in and then we climbed up the side of the mountain. This mountain was steep. It was like like 45 degrees steep and it was a mudslide by now. So we were hanging onto trees and anything else that we could possibly hold onto to climb up and get up to the top of the mountain and to get up back up to the road where the safety was. And where the road was, there was like a a thing to stop landslides, like a a stone sort of a wall Mm -hmm. to stop the road from having any erosion. And we had to get pulled up over that wall. And as this person who'd guided us to the road pulled me up over that and he looked at me, it was the guide who tried to hold my hand in the water hole when I first jumped in and he also had survived. Wow. And then he burst into tears 
And he said, you're the one I couldn't hang on to. Wow. And we hugged. And then we walked down the road. And when we got to the bottom of the road, it was a scene of a rescue attempt, but I knew that they were too late. So 21 people died that day. Five of them were my friends, 18 participants and three uh, three guides. One of the guides actually jumped in three times to pull bodies out. And then the last time she was never recovered. That girl that I spoke, that I stood next to whose wedding rings had a bandaid over them, like I said, she's never been found. My friend that I said, why is the water rising? I was the last person to ever speak to her. I had a broken tibia split in half from my ankle to my knee that was completely separated. I had four broken ribs, but they were crushed. So it was like particles of rib all through my chest. My pancreas is damaged uh, on an insulin pump with type one diabetes, which has a flow on effect with all my other health issues. Mm -hmm. I had soft tissue damage to both of my legs, which give me um, trouble every day. My legs constantly ache. I had a dislocated jaw. I used to be a professional singer before. I did lots of singing for years, but I can't sing anymore. I've had surgery on it um, multiple times. So that's, that's, I mean, I'm fine. I can talk and that's, that's okay. Um, And then I had uh, PTSD and survivor's guilt for many years. And it was the largest number of Australian deaths on foreign soil outside of war times. It was instantly massive international disaster it was switzerland's largest ever natural disaster and in switzerland they call the 27th of july which is the date of the anniversary of the accident they call it the day switzerland held its breath Mm. and at the saxton bark gorge which is the canyon that we were in there's actually a beautiful permanent memorial site that is held for all of the people who perished that day and last year was the 20th anniversary of the swiss canyoning Mm -hmm. disaster and there was a very large international memorial event where dignitaries from all over the globe, including former prime ministers, consulate generals, and people from everywhere came to pay pay tribute to those who perished. Well, thank you for sharing that, Tiffany. This is just an incredible story. I'm like sitting here, like (laughs) holding on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it is absolutely a miracle that mm-hmm. I survived. For sure. For sure. And, well, I'm just, your entire story is just so, it's so relatable. It's so, like, I can't believe it. <laughs> I mm-hmm. can't imagine experiencing that. And I must say, you are a really great storyteller. I felt like I was there. Um no, really. Um, I guess so. Hmm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to like, get myself together. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think the thing that really struck struck me is that you know that moment that you said was your pivot when you realized that mm. you didn't want to be that who you were before you didn't want that to be your story that you're ready for the next chapter and and that you fought to the point of exhaustion with a broken leg and broken ribs and still went on i just you know i mean that's such like what a parable for life and just a parable like it's just really Mm. incredible what Mm. i guess what did you do after or what are you doing now (laughs) Yeah, so um, so after straight initially after we were taken to hospital, and none of my injuries were in fact identified until I about two months after the accident when I got home. So I'd been walking around with my broken leg for a long time. So when they did all the X-rays, and they um, were taken so soon that none of the calcification had shown up, and they only did one angle on um, anywhere that I said was sore, Mm -hmm. and. And they, I don't, I mean, it's all very, it's a long time ago now and yeah. um, fuzzy, but um, they just, they just said, I've got bruised ribs. And I was like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And they're like, mm, you're just really badly bruised. But when in fact they were shattered. And so, you know, my leg really hurts. Oh, here's some crutches, but you know, you just got bad bruising. 
and we were held hostage for a period of time. We weren't allowed to leave the chalet. Mm -hmm. So the next day we were, you know, we were sent out of the hospital because they said, you're fine. But what had happened in the moment of that being in hospital was that they took us because we're in Switzerland and you hear about how they've got bunkers and stuff all the time. They do. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. So when we went into the hospital, we were taken underground, which doesn't sound strange in terms of, you know, lots of buildings have underground parts as underground car parks and whatever, but this was very different. This wasn't like a normal going underground okay. and there was, it felt different and there was, um, and it was all very white, uh, very white and really, really iridescent lights. Like it was okay. and just white and steel and very, very different to what mm-hmm. we have here. And um, when we were in this room, we weren't allowed to leave the room and there was a window at the top of this room and you could see the earth and you could see um, like the, the grass or whatever the plant was and you could see mm-hmm. the roots and the, the earth and the roots and this grass bit. And where the helicopters kept coming, you could see the grass go wobble, yeah. wobble with the wind mm-hmm. from the helicopter. And we kept hearing helicopters and we were in there. For, oh, it felt like hours that we were in there. And every time we'd hear a helicopter come, we would think, oh, someone else is coming. Mm-hmm. But no one ever came because they were all being taken to the morgue. And we had absolutely no idea what mm-hmm. was going on. And then a nurse came in and she said, there's been a really big accident. You need to call home because it's going to be all over the news, all across the world. And we were like, what? Like, we're a bunch of Aussies and Kiwis. No one from home is going to know that this has happened. And she said, yes, they will. And you've got three minutes because the journalists are tapping the phones. So you need to, um, we're under police escort, the Australian Mm -hmm. consulate and the New Zealand consulate are on their way. And you have three minutes to call home and tell them that you're alive. And so we were like, what the hell has gone on? Mm -hmm. And so then, um, I made a phone call back home. It was about 2am at home Mm -hmm. and my dad answered the phone and he said, what's up possum? Because he always calls me possum. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how do you know? Because I thought, why? He hasn't even said hello. He's just, he's known instantly that it was me. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do you know? And he's like, well, it's two o'clock in the morning. Something must have happened. There's an international dial tone. What's happened? And Mm -hmm. I said, they're all dead. I'm alive. Wow. And he was like, who's dead? Where are you? And I said, I'm in hospital in Switzerland. And then the nurse comes in and she's like, hurry up. You need to get off the phone. And then my dad's going, your mother wants to talk to you. Your mother's freaking out. <laughs> so then mum's, darling, you're all right. Where are you? I'm in hospital. I'm in Switzerland. I've got to go. And I hung up. All my parents knew was that I was in hospital. I was alive and I was in Switzerland somewhere. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like as a parent now, that is actually like so traumatic. <laughs> so traumatic. So uh, traumatic. And so then in the morning when it was all over the news and helicopters were over mum and dad's property and oh, it was just, it was intense. And um, eventually we came home and I knew mm. that I had to come home and I was so angry when I was, I was so angry. And I was having no pain relief at all for any of my injuries. So I, oh, my goodness. It was just a nightmare. And so then when we got on the plane and those, those days in the chalet and then getting back to London are quite blurry. I don't even remember the flight from Bern to London. I can't even remember really getting there even. Mm-hmm. And I just remember about to get onto the plane to go home and they'd put us on business class flights um, but none of my clothes fit because my body had blown up so much and I was black mm. and blue. Like, you know, those terrible yeah. TV shows where people have been beaten to death and they show mm-hmm. like photos of people who are so traumatized. Mm-hmm. I look like that. Wow. And I had no shoes on and I remember that the ground was really scratchy. It was this horrible carpet and like really, really, really like it hurt my feet because I was so swollen and so yeah. bruised that that I just remember the pain of every step also because I had a broken leg mm-hmm. and, um, and I actually stood there. And you know when you're about to get on a plane and there's like that air from the plane and mm. the air conditioning and the earth, like there's three yep. lots of air coming through. And I remember standing in that and thinking, I wish that I'd died. I wish that I'd been taken. Why have I been left? Dying would have been so much easier than this. And so then we got on the plane and made our way home. 
And then we got off the plane. The Secret Service got us off the plane because the media was so intense. And we were taken through all these back passages of the Sydney airport. And then, you know, they opened a door which looked like a wall and we were shown into our family. And I was furious. I was so angry. And I think it was all part of the grief and Mm -hmm. the fact that I was in pain and Mm -hmm. no one had picked anything up. And and then we got home and I basically just slept. I just, I didn't talk to anyone. I thought, how can anyone actually understand what I've been through? Yeah. No, how can anyone? No one understands. And so fortunately, Cassandra had actually, that's my friend who I met in Tuscany. She Mm. had hurt her knee in Venice and she wasn't able to go canyoning, but her cousin was able to go canyoning and her cousin was one of the ones that perished. And her journey was enormous as well. All of our journeys were enormous. Yeah. One's wasn't more enormous than the other. Mm-hmm. And my mum got to a point, I can't remember exactly the timing of it, but I'd been home for a little while and I just, I refused to talk to anybody. And the only, if I ever spoke, it was about Cassandra. And so my mum got her number and she rang Cassandra and Cassandra answered the phone Mm -hmm. and my mum said to her, hi, you don't know me, but I know about you and I'm Tiffany's mum. And Cassandra said, oh, how is Tiff? And mum said, I don't know what to do with her. I don't know what to do. You're the only person she'll talk about. Will you please come and be with us? Mm. And so Cassandra got on a plane after having not long got back, I think, because she'd stayed, she had to stay back in Switzerland and do a whole lot of stuff and help with her cousin and her family. And yeah. like I said, her journey was very different. And she got on a plane and three hours later, she was by my side. And wow. that was the beginning of my ability to open up and connect and mm. start my path of recovery because I really did not ever think that anyone would ever truly understand just how horrific it really had been. I never told my parents and I still hadn't told them about the relationship. And I realized that I hadn't, I wasn't holding on to that shame anymore. I'd let all Mm -hmm. of that go and everything in my life was a total gift and a blessing. And the reason that I was left to survive part of my healing through all of that And especially with the, not so much a PTSD, but really with the survivor's guilt, which is horrific to go through survivor's guilt. And I know so many people go through that. Was that I have been left for whatever the reason is. And I feel that my purpose and my mission is to share my story, to help empower other people to make positive change in their life, to be brilliantly brave in everything that they do. Because sometimes just getting up out of bed in the morning is brave Mm -hmm. and it takes courage and it takes guts and determination. But what it takes more than anything else is belief in ourselves to know that we are here for a God-given purpose, whatever that is. And to go on that journey is to be incredibly brave. And so that's what I do now is that I really do a lot of work on helping people to unlock their best and bravest self. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And I just want to thank you for sharing this incredible story and (sighs) being so candid and open and all the, all the words. (laughs) (sighs) Thank you for having me. Oh gosh. Thank you so much. Um, Normally I would ask someone for a piece of advice. (laughs) <laughs> and you've given so much. I'm going to ask you anyway, because that's, that's what I do. Um, what's, what's another takeaway that someone should take from your story? I always say that, and this is one of my most favorite sayings, is that when you truly believe in yourself, magic comes your way and it spreads like a wildfire for others to join in. And so knowing that you are your authentic self and you're living your truth, which can be incredibly challenging and very hard, but knowing those things about who you are, who you truly are, just like in that moment when I was holding the snow or just like in that moment when I was pushed up against the boulder with the log, when you have those lightning bulb moments of this is me, like the song in The Greatest Showman, Mm -hmm. this is me, let your light shine because you are magic. Beautiful. 
Thank you so much, Tiffany. Oh, it's um, my pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Um, how can people find you and hear about your podcast and the name of your book again? Oh, uh, yes. Can find us. Absolutely. So if you would love to hear more about my story, uh, I have my book, Brave Enough Now, and it is an inspirational story of self-discovery, survival, and hope. And I really, I really love my book. And I think that your listeners will really love it too. And because mm-hmm. we are on a podcast, we are, uh, I'm about to launch it as an audio book. So that's so oh. exciting. And it's, it's re- and I've narrated it. So, um, and I'm crying in it and everything. It's very raw. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> but I think that it will be amazing. It is amazing. So that's um, just about to launch, which is okay. wonderful. Um, and you can find my book as an ebook or paperback on Amazon, or you can go to my website, tiffanyjohnson.com.au. AU and I'm on Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter. I'm, you know, I'm everywhere. All the socials. And And my podcast is called When We Are Brave. And um, similar to what you're doing is this, it's a wonderful opportunity for conversation for people to share their tips and tricks on living their best and bravest life. So there's lots of inspirational stories and conversations with amazing people from all different walks of life who share their own personal experiences. And I'm on there too talking about stuff, but I just love podcasts. So thank you so much for having me. It has been, it's been a joy to be here and share my story. So thank you. And it was a joy to listen. Thank you so much. What did you take away from Tiffany's story? Are you ready to unlock your best and bravest self? I'm Thea Charles, and I hope you gained insight from this story and that you'll share this podcast with a friend. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review The Pusher Pivot on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on The Pusher Pivot and to join our mailing list, visit us on the web at pusherpivot.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pusher Pivot. Thank you for listening and join me next time on The Push or Pivot Podcast.